Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Mongolia is sometimes seen as one of the few examples of a successful youth-led revolution, where a 1990 movement forced the Soviet-appointed Politburo to resign. In Young Mongols, Forging Democracy in the Wild Wild East, Abi Menard profiles many of today's young activists in Mongolia in a wide array of different areas like pollution, feminism, LGBT rights, and journalism. She discusses the issues they are trying to solve and the challenges they are confronted with in today's Mongolia. Aubrey is an expert on political transitions, elections, and democracy, working on democracy and governance issues in Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, Central America, and the United States. She lived in Mongolia as a loose scholar from 2015 to 2016. Today, Aubrey and I will discuss the development of Mongolia's democracy and many of the activists she profiles in her book. We'll talk about whether we can think about young Mongolians as a quote-unquote generation and whether Mongolia's experience supports or challenges normal democratic theory. We'll also touch base on what's been happening in Mongolia since she published her book. So, Aubrey, perhaps it's best to start with Mongolia's history as a democratic country. Um, you know in your introduction that it's perhaps an example of a successful youth-led revolution. I'm, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but it's perhaps best to start with uh, what happened in 1990 and how have things developed since then? How has Mongolia developed as a democracy? Well, thanks so much, Nicholas, for having me on. I'm really excited to be talking to you today, and I'm always excited to be talking about Mongolia. I think that Mongolia's uh, student revolution in 1990 is... it. It's such an exciting story. It's one that's really missing from the world stage. Um, and it's it, it's inspiring because it was a youth-led revolution and also because it was, you know, one of these few examples that we have of a, a truly peaceful revolution. And it, it's due to organizers of the revolution that it managed to stay as peaceful as it was. Um, so as I get into in the book, um, the, the revolution in 1990 um, started with a group of, of somewhat, you know, Mongolian elites. They'd, they'd studied abroad in other parts of the Soviet Union. And as the Soviet Union's glasnost reforms were coming to be, and so they were sort of co-mingling with people from other parts of the Soviet Union who, who were coming into contact with these democratic ideas and ideals. And they brought those home with them to the Soviet Union and started talking and organizing um, very secretively at first. But then they um, started posting flyers in the streets and eventually uh, gathered in the streets with um, and, and one of the, my favorite parts of Mongolia's revolutionary story uh, is the role that rock, rock and pop music had to play in it, um, you know, part of the ideas that were infiltrating the the Soviet Union at the time uh, were, you know, this sort of Western rock and roll. And uh, in Mongolia, if you go to Mongolia, there's a, it, it seems uh, a bit strange to see it there, but there's a, there's a big statue to the Beatles in downtown Ulaanbaatar. And um, that statue is, was erected in memoriam for the role that uh, rock music played in Mongolia's revolution. So the protesters were out there. They had a, a, a band that was uh, playing the song. It's called The Sound of the Bell. Um, and it's calling Mongolians to, to wake up from 
the the long stupor of the Soviet Union, and it's a it's a call to action. And so, you know, over the course of many months, you had these revolutionaries out in Ulaanbaatar's main square, um, you know, kind of against, you know, the Politburo was holed up inside trying to figure out what to do um, and whether the revolution would dissipate or they would have to resign. And, uh, you know, the Politburo, Politburo made some concessions, but the, the revolutionaries uh, didn't stop until their demands were truly met. And so they were out there. There was a, a huge hunger strike um, that went on for a while. And they really held the Politburo's feet to the fire through the cold, brutal cold months of Mongolian winter, which if you've never been to Mongolia in the winter, I don't recommend it. Uh, but it, it's really an inspiring revolutionary story and one that I wish the world would pay more attention to. And and you 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 know in your book that I think Mongolia is not normally a a country that I think people um, around the world or frankly even in Asia think very much about or know very much about. What's the best way to describe Mongolia's kind of current system of government? Um, so I would call Mongolia uh, a, it's a democracy. Uh, they have got a parliament and they have a parliamentary and presidential system. Um, and while it is a democracy, it's certainly a democracy under threat. They, uh, a few years back, elected um, Batulka, who is uh, seen as sort of the strong man, the Trump of Mongolia, um, who has been steadily trying to erode the country's democratic systems and um, ha- has been somewhat successful in that. So... We're going to get into talking about some of the people you you profile in your book, but before we get into that, I want to ask, what brought you to Mongolia in the first place, and and what was it like to to be based there and be writing there? Um, yeah, sure. So I was sitting in a, a graduate school class in at Oxford in 2012, and I knew nothing about Mongolia or its revolution. But we we're we we're discussing social movements, and a classmate of mine, Joseph Scarlett Smith, brought up Mongolia as sort of a counterexample of a place where student revolution had actually been successful. You'll find if you study student revolutions that they often um, end up not being successful. And I was intrigued. I thought, you know, I I didn't know anything about Mongolia. I went home that night, looked up everything I could on Mongolia, and there's there's not very much written. And so I started, uh, I started Digging in further, I ended up writing about Mongolia for for my own graduate thesis um, as one of my case studies. And then um, at the end of my research, I just wasn't satisfied, um, especially because I, I felt like there was so much more to learn and um, so much that was just going completely uncovered in both world media and also it was it was coming out from Mongolia. So I applied for the Loose Fellowship. Um, and the loose scholarship is, is to, to, they take, um, kind of burgeoning American leaders and give them a year of work experience in Asia, um, so that, uh, we're able to, you know, as we move forward in our careers, we have a better understanding of Asia and Asia's place in the world. And I think, you know, most people go into that fellowship looking to go, you know, to places like Hong Kong or Thailand, um, places where, where one might have an easy year, but I applied for the fellowship specifically trying to get myself to Mongolia. Um, and they, they have very few people who go to Mongolia on this fellowship, but I was 
really lucky. I'm I'm among the the, the tiny cohort of weird loose scholars who go to Mongolia. Um, and so I ended up there and my, my work placement was working with the Mongolian Chamber of Commerce and Industry um, because my, my professional focus is on natural resource governance and how countries manage their uh, natural resource wealth and how that co-mingles with democratization or uh, lack thereof. And so I was there working for the Chamber of Commerce, but I just kept meeting all of these really exciting and inspiring young activists. And I and meeting these people made me realize not only how wrong and outdated my perception of Mongolia had been, even though I had signed on to, to move there, but my family and friends back home, when I told them I was moving to Mongolia, it was all like, are you going to be living in a yurt? Are you going to be riding a horse? Uh, if there's electricity, is there internet there? Maybe you could send us an email to let us know that you're okay. And the reality is, is that Ulaanbaatar is a bustling metropolis with all sorts of really globally engaged people doing fascinating things. So um, that's what I've tried to share a bit with the world, both in the video series that that started um, this this larger project and in the book that I've just published. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned a lot of young activists um, when you were in Mongolia. And your book obviously talks about many, many, many of these young activists and all the work that they are doing. Um, I was hoping you could tell me about some of them, some of the some of the ones and the topics you found most interesting, some people you felt were doing um, the most good. I just wanted to hear from, from you kind of some, some of the stories of these people in Mongolia. Sure, Nick. So, um, and, and maybe you can tell me too. I'll give I'll give you a couple of my favorites, and then you can tell me who jumped out at, at you. Um, but so I'm still on the board of Mongolia's LGBT Center, um, and quite and I'm quite involved with their work. Um, but I think that the work that the LGBT Center has done in Mongolia really stands out, um, especially because I've worked with LGBTQIA people throughout post-Soviet countries. Um, the work that they've done in Mongolia has really moved the needle on human rights, not just for their own community, but for you know ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, women, uh, because they're working in such an intersectional way. Um, they have been very smart about how they've they, they've gotten legislation passed um, to criminalize uh, hate hate crimes and hate speech, and. And now we're working in a very targeted way to have that legislation, ha- have police and law enforcement aware of what is in that legislation so that there's not an implementation gap and working to get cases tried in Mongolian courts that will set the precedent that they need to really make sure that this law is more than just a piece of paper. So I think um, you know, and there's a whole chapter on the work that the LGBT Center is, is doing. And um, I think they're doing, in addition to the legal work that they're doing, they're doing great work to um, change hearts and minds in Mongolia about, you know, who who queer people are and that, you know, queer people aren't just, uh, they don't just exist in Western countries, but um, there are Mong- Mongolians of a variety of different gender and sexual orientations um, and that it is a very organic thing and not uh, Western important, imported ideals, which is sometimes the, the criticism there. Um, so there's the LGBT Center. Um, 
And so I, in researching this book, I came to the topic of human trafficking through the work that um, Lenten Dohyo is one of the organizations that I profile in the book um, and the, the, the work that they're doing to counter human trafficking. And actually, I was, I was so inspired to learn about that work that I've started doing research for my next book, which will focus on specifically on uh, Mongolian survivors of human trafficking who made it back to Mongolia due to the the work of these incredible organizations and what their lives have looked like since getting back home. So those are two of my favorites. I have many favorites. So I'm curious to see who you yours are. Well, it's interesting you 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 highlight the 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 activists working in the LGBT in the LGBT space. Um, in your chapter, that's that's a that's a story with quite quite a sad ending with with um with one of them, Anara, currently in the in the Netherlands, um, in a refugee camp, I believe, after after I guess being well, I guess after a, after suffering kind of kind of threat of harassment and violence, mm-hmm. um, I guess is 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 are is, is is that kind of let's say more um, sad ending common among many of the activists you profiled, or 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 was or is this really or were there many more kind of optimistic stories about kind of you know things there are challenges but they're but they are able to push for change and actually see change in Mongolia. Yeah. So I guess it's, it's too early to say. Um, So since I wrote the book, there was a horrific attack of um, there's a woman um, and I I won't give you her name to Mm. her confidentiality, but um, she's, she's a trans sex worker. Um, As I mentioned in the book, it's incredibly difficult for trans people in Mongolia to get employment because there's no um, employment anti-discrimination, although that is uh, legal work that the center is doing. There's legal work the center is doing to try to get um, employment anti-discrimination passed. Um, But also Mongolia has recently gotten very strict about allowing people to change their gender markers on their official documents, which makes it almost impossible for trans people to get work. And so um, this, this trans sex worker was uh, lured into a hotel room by Bosokh uh, Mongol, which is a Mongolian like neo-Nazi ultra-right group. And they collaborated with a TV station. And so they lured this trans sex worker into a TV, uh, into a hotel room and forced her um, to, to do an absolutely degrading interview on TV um, in which they threatened uh, to scalp uh, any members of the LGBT community that they found, um, you know, and blamed uh, national security issues on the community, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Truly disgusting things. And so that could be, you, you could look at that as a story with a tragic ending um, or you could look at the work that the LGBT center has done uh, since that happened, which um, this, this woman has been brave enough to come forward and press charges. Um, The police, because of all of the training that the LGBT center has done on training law enforcement about what is written in that criminal code, um, they arrested the leader of the ultra right group on the basis of hate crimes. And so now the, the, the case is being tried in the court. Um, it's, it's the, you know, it was, 
it's complicated and I, I'm not going to pretend to fully, I'm not a Mongolian lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend to fully understand Mongolian law, but um, it's, it's being tried right now. And, you know, we, we may not get the outcome that we're looking for, but I think the fact that uh, a case like this, uh, that the police recognize this as a hate crime and that it has gone to trial is in itself a major victory. Um, even though it's been incredibly difficult um, and absolutely horrific for the people involved. I want to shift to a different topic you discuss in your book, specifically the topic of, of natural resources, which, which, I mean, that was, that, that also aligns with, with, with your background in kind of resource management and governance. Um, but, but I guess, could you talk a little more about, about the activists that were involved in this space, in, in the space of natural resources? And I guess, by extension, pollution isn't quite the same thing, but, it, but, but they do align in some respects. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I think the, the person who really stood out to me in the natural resource uh, chapter is uh, Orchlin. Uh, Orchlin and Sexag. Oh, sorry, my Mongolian pronunciation is a bit rusty. Um, but uh, you know, Orchlin, I don't think would consider himself an activist. Uh, he's very much a businessman. Uh, you know, he worked with Oyu Tolgoi, which is the Mongolian mining, uh, the, the big, big mine in Rio Tinto's big mine in Mongolia. And um, now he's working for the Newcom group on a solar, uh, building a solar farm out in, uh, you know, uh, the Gobi Desert, essentially. And um, so Orchlin, I don't think would describe himself as an activist, but I think his work is having, uh, you know, what he's one of the biggest movers and shakers in Mongolia right now, as far as working to transition Mongolia away from its dependence on fossil fuels, not only for its internal consumption, but also um, as an export commodity. Mongolia is deeply, deeply dependent on its mined exports. So, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at the latest numbers and coronavirus has really affected this, but let's just say about in any given year, 80% of Mongolia's exports are mined resources and 90% of those go straight to China. Um, so you, when something happens, like the border closes with China or China's demand slows because China is trying to reduce its own coal dependence, um, because Mongolia's economy is so dependent on that single sector and that single uh, export partner, Mongolia's economy just goes into freefall um, and the effects are dramatic. And so Orchelin is one of those people, um, as I mentioned right now, he's working to build uh, wind farms. Um, to, he's trying to you know, get Mongolia out of this dependence and get Mongolia linked up to other countries, uh, specifically regionally in Asia. Um, to try to get it away from that single sector, single country dependence. I want to talk about maybe one more of the topics you discuss in your book for maybe talking more about Mongolia in general. Um, I, I note in your, in, in your, in your chapter on, on women's rights and feminism, um, you note the, uh, I guess, how, how Mongolia's history, specifically the, uh, the history of, of Chinggis Khan has been, of that era, has been distorted to support um, perhaps a more a more masculine patriarchal society, when in fact the history is much more complicated than that. Um, I was hoping you might kind of delve into into that a little bit. Sure. Um, 
So as a feminist, I, uh, I believe that women's historical subjugation is uh, no reason why our subjugation could, or justification for why our subjugation should continue into the future. Um, but in Mongolia, even along the historical, you know, if, you, if, they try, if people try to make a historical subjugation argument as a reason why these values are you know, cultural and important to Mongolians, it really doesn't stand up. Um, if you read Jack Weatherford's work on Chinggis Khan and also on the Mongol queens, you'll see that Mongolia actually has a rich, very rich history of women uh, have, taking on all sorts of roles from governing the empire to fighting in battle. And um, they really did have a different role throughout history um, that has been since subjugated and, you know, in Mongolia today, people use try to use these historical claims to continue that subjugation. And um, one of the things that I mentioned in the book specifically is um, Mongolian women are being banned from walking on an increasing number of mountains um, because uh, shaman are going around and saying that you know these these mountains are sacred spaces for men. And then you get male politicians who go on retreats uh, where they walk up these mountains. And women are literally uh, not allowed, and we would say they're not allowed in the room, but uh, I guess the room is a mountain. And um, women aren't allowed to walk up that mountain because they'll dirty it with their womanness. <laughs> and so you get uh, a physical exclusion of women from power uh, and also from being able to walk outside freely. Um. So from so from that, I'd like to talk more about Mongolia in general. Um, and I think, first of all, uh, you note in your chapter on journalism um, in in Young Mongols that uh, Mongolia is severely underrepresented in world media. I think you you even do a search in the New York Times archives, and your book says that out of thirteen million articles, a mere nine thousand mention Mongolia at all, and in fact, more articles dis- discuss uh, Chinggis Khan than Mongolia as a country. Um, what are some of the repercussions you think of of this complete, to, I guess to be frank, this this complete ignorance of Mongolia in in world or or Western media? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot. So there's kind of what it does to the world and there's what it does to Mongolia. So first I would say what it does to the world is, you know, as we started talking about at the beginning of this interview, we have this very interesting, compelling case of a peaceful youth-led democratic revolution um, that we're just not learning from. And that's a real shame because I think the world does have a lot to learn from Mongolia's experience. Um, But in terms of Mongolia, it promotes this... um, extremely exoticized view of a country that we like to look at as a land that's just stuck in time where, you know, I mean, and and there there are parts of Mongolia where nomadism is, uh, you know, people are still nomadic herders and that is part of Mongolian life. But when you have more than half of the country living in the capital um, and engaged in a, you know, very different lifestyle, um, it's, it's just, it's just a very distorted view. And so I can give you kind of a recent example that uh, I've been I've been fighting with journalists on Twitter, which uh, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> um, they uh, so so there was this article um, that came out 
in the South China Morning Post where um, they're, they're talking about Mongolia's coronavirus response. And this, this, and I'm not even going to call this guy a journalist, but he, uh, this, he's kind of like a, a freelancer. Um, he, he wrote this article that was about how, you know, Mongolia has no locally transmitted cases of coronavirus because the, the blood of Chinggis Khan is coursing through their veins. And, uh, you know, like Mongolians are, drink a lot of yak milk or whatever. And like, this is what has, uh, made them impervious to the coronavirus. And it's just they're reductive because actually um, the, the, the real story is so much more interesting, which is that Mongolia, uh, their medical doctors have have really worked hard to train themselves to educate the population to uh, process, uh, I guess not process trace, but um, you know, track all of the active cases that were brought into the country. Um, they've also imposed really strict quarantine measures that have had drastic repercussions both for the economy and because they they closed their borders in January um, as soon as they found out what was happening. And that this stranded more than 12,000 Mongolians abroad. And so you now have cases of Mongolians who are homeless in the U.S. and Europe because they've run out of money and they can't get back to their countries. So when you tell a story that's as re- reductive as, you know, Mongolia's, Mongolians don't have the coronavirus because they have the blood of Genghis Khan in their veins, it's, it's A, kind of eugenicist, and B, you miss the real story of what's happening. So, you know, kind of as a result of fighting with people on Twitter, uh, Business Insider, uh, I, I emailed them uh, because they'd put out, you know, like a call for stories about this blood of Genghis Khan thing. And I wrote to them and said, you know, this is really reductive. It misses the, the rest of the story. And uh, to their credit, they said, you know, wow, thanks for writing us. Um, let's hire a Mongolian journalist to tell the real story of what's going on there. And they produced what I think is actually a much more nuanced, really interesting piece. It's, you know, I think it's like a 12 minute video that they put out of um, the realities of the situation. And I think it's much more interesting and a much better story. I, I'm somewhat reminded of the, um, you know, while, while we're on the topic of COVID, um, you know, there's, there's a strain of argument that, 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 that the very different response out here is due to, you know, quote unquote, Confucian values or something innate in the, in the culture out here, when in fact it's, you know, it's government policy, both mm-hmm. good, well, with both positive and some negative repercussions. Um, so I guess it's not, it's not a, it's, it's not a problem unique to Mongolia, but surely, but I think you're, but as you say, the, the neglect of Mongolia in, and the exotic, the exoticization of Mongolia in the media almost certainly seems to make this much worse. Um, but onto a, onto a different question. Um, you know, wh- when we talk about kind of populations and demographics within them, we normally split them into, you know, a generation quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, a group of people with common experiences, common histories, um, maybe some common kind of cultural touchstones. Um, would it be appropriate to think of young Mongolians or at least the Mongolians you talk to in the same way? Um, if we were to consider them a quote unquote generation, what are the kinds of common experiences that they would have? Mm, so I think that actually considering young Mongolians a generation in this way is even more appropriate than it might be in other places, and specifically because um, they've grown up in a democracy, whereas their parents did not. So, 
even those uh, those Mongolian leaders who were young at the time who led their country's democratic revolution, they grew up under um, you know a closed Soviet authoritarian system, and while they you know admirably led a revolution and have gone on to change their country. I think there is a real difference between um, people who grew up under, you know, authoritarian communism and people who grew up in a free and open society. And so those who have lived their entire lives under a democratic system are only 30 now. Um, And I think that they've grown up seeing their country open to the world. They're, they're, they're well-traveled, whereas, you know, previously their parents just, they couldn't be, they weren't allowed to be. Um, they've grown up uh, learning different languages, particularly English. Um, South Korea is a big influence as well as Japan in Mongolia right now. So they're, they're reading the languages and engaging with content from these other democracies. And, um, you know, they, they really have a global perspective and are looking for ways to respect Mongolian culture, but also bring their country and develop their country in the 21st century. Um, I think one more, one more question about, you know, Mongolia and its experience. Um, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to combine kind of two questions in one. Um, first of all, uh, you know, the, as you mentioned in the, in the introduction of your book, um, this is all sparked by, by the observation that, Youth-led movements normally struggle to succeed, and Mongolia kind of challenges this idea. Um, I guess you have any theories as to why Mongolia may be different? And then I guess building off of that, does Mongolia's experience as a democracy, uh, how does that work with um, the way we normally think about democracies and democratic theory? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> big questions. And I'm going to try not to give you a, a too political science answer. Um, but, you know, one of the, the theories about Mongolia's uh, peaceful youth-led revolution, and this comes from Morris Rasabi, who's a, a historian who studied Mongolia extensively, um, is that um, part of the reason that their revolution did not turn violent is because of the, because Mongolia, essentially because Mongolia is small, um, and the revolution was led by the educated sons and daughters of many of the, the people who are sitting in the Politburo. Um, so, uh, you know, it's kind of like an elite led revolution theory. Um, and then part of, uh, if you look at, um, you know, Michael McFall is another big thinker in uh, the post-Soviet space. He's done a lot of work on Russia um, and he looks at the importance of uh, having like a, he calls it a founding father figure. Um, and that being one of the key predictors of whether uh, post-Soviet countries go on to become authoritarian or democratic. Um, so in places uh, like Kazakhstan, where their Soviet leader went on to just continue to be their post-Soviet leader, um, democracy didn't really have a chance to take hold. And so in Mongolia, uh, they had, uh, this, their, their, uh, their, you know, the leader of their Politburo was, uh, a guy named Batmunk Jamba, who I think Mongolia was very fortunate to have it as its leader. So he wasn't your typical, you know, up through the party structure, 
um, kind of Soviet leader. He was an economics professor at a university. And um, when the revolution was about to tip and it was about to get violent, he he said that, you know, his Politburo members brought to him in order to, I guess, start firing on the crowd. And he said, I will never sign this. We few Mongols have not yet come to the point where we will make each other's noses bleed. Um, and when the government transitioned, rather than fighting for power uh, the way that you see in Aliyev and Azerbaijan, uh, where authoritarianism did take hold, uh, he just quietly lived out the rest of his life farming vegetables and uh, selling bread and traditional clothing that he and his wife made. So, um, you know, if you look at like a leader centric model of theories of democratization, you can see how this one man in Mongolian history who, you know, isn't he, he isn't held up in the same way as like Zorig, the leader of Mongolia's democratic revolution is in Mongolia, but actually he, he, he could have been, you know, this, this one of the deciding factors in whether or not the country democratized or not. Okay. I think I'd like to ask a few more questions before, before we wrap, I guess, but in, sure. and, 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 and much, and, and much lighter than the, than the last question <laughs> I just asked. I guess Sorry, the first I of got, all, I got too into political theory on that one, didn't I? <laughs> oh, there's no, no, there's absolutely no problem with me. Um, but, but I guess kind of one question I'd like to ask is: So, have you kept in touch with any of the people you profiled since, since, um, well, a since you left Mongolia, and uh, b since you published the book? Absolutely. So, um, you know, in writing this book, I, I'm very conscious that I am a non-Mongolian you know, writing about Mongolia. And so I intended the book to be a platform for Mongolian stories. And so as I've done book readings, I've been doing um, digital book readings, I've done them in conjunction with the activists that I've profiled in the book so that uh, people are able to ask those people their questions directly themselves and get to know them and their work a bit more. Um, but I've also made a commitment to continue my own work in Mongolia. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been up a bunch, well, <laughs> before coronavirus, I had, had gone up um, a few times, even since writing the book. Um, and one of the things that I've, I'm, I'm work, I, have, I have a whole bunch of Mongolia projects. I could talk to you, talk to you about Mongolia projects all day. Um, but... Um, We'll have we'll have space for you to talk about those at the end of the interview. So don't. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, I was just going to say. So one of the things that um, I'm working on now is um, I ran a, um, a short story and essay writing contest um, for you know aspiring Mongolian writers, and I'm working on putting together an edited anthology now. And one of the one of the winners of the competition uh, was was Jack, who is uh, one of the LGBT. Uh, center actors that I profile in the book. And I think it's really exciting that, you know, first I told his story in this book, but now in this short story collection, he's had a chance to tell his story in his own words. So I'm excited to get that into the hands of people. Great. And now, and now my last question before we wrap, um, I asked kind of again, what, what has been happening? Some of the activists you, um, sorry, have you kept in touch with since writing the book? What's happened in Mongolia since you wrote the book? We, we've talked a lot about, about the COVID response and, and, and the struggles around that, but kind of what's happened in Mongolia politically, economically since, since you wrote the book? Mm, so, um, you know, and it's hard to talk about what's happened in Mongolia without 
talking about what's happened with the COVID response because that's been the overarching theme. So Mongolia mm. parliamentary elections in June, and um, the 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 ruling party, basically the the incumbent party, went on to commandingly win re-election. Um, which you know, if you'll remember from the journalism chapter, I talk about this um, major scandal that broke um, through investigative journalism that 14 um, prominent politicians had been caught with their hands in the, in the cookie jar, as it were, um, just embezzling tons and tons of money <laughs> um, and thinking they could get away with it because the, the transparency standards um, weren't, you know, the, the transparency standards were in place, but also investigative journalism wasn't at the point that it, it, I mean, it's grown tremendously in a year. Um, Mongolian journalists are engaging in data journalism and exposing um, this sort of high level embezzlement at at rates that we haven't seen before. And so when that was initially exposed, there were protests in the streets. There was a campaign saying we will never forgive. Um, And the plan was to go in and vote all of these people out of office Um, But then the pandemic happened and the government, um, you know, I think, you know, you can criticize people being stuck outside the country and what that's looked like. Um, But Mongolia has one of the lowest coronavirus case rates in the entire world, and they share their entire southern border with China. So I think Mongolians have given... The, the ruling party a lot of credit for its coronavirus response um, and then, you know, went in into the election booths in June and voted them all back in. Um, now, we've got presidential elections coming up uh, at the end of, well, it's, it, they're a year after the parliamentary election, so they'll probably, they haven't been scheduled yet, but they'll likely happen in, in June of this coming year. And uh, I guess we'll see we'll see what happens with Batulga if people are if if people credit uh, you know because Mongolia has this split presidential parliamentary system um, if that credit extends to him if uh, they're still feeling good about the coronavirus response at that point I think will remain to be seen. So I think with that um, thanks again to listening in thanks to Aubrey for for taking part in this interview. Aubrey, where can people find your work? And is there anything you're working on next, such as some of the many Mongolia projects you mentioned earlier, uh, that you'd like to, you know, share with our listeners? Yeah. So um, head on over to youngmongols.com. You can figure out how to get the book from there, but you can also, um, I've set up pages. So I've got pictures of everyone who's profiled in the book, as well as the original video series. So people can um, really, uh, rather than these just kind of being, nameless people in your head as you're as you're reading the book i encourage you to go take a look as you're reading the book and and see these people speak for themselves or at least see their pictures um as i mentioned i've got this um edited story anthology um that'll come out locally in mongolia and then hopefully we'll turn it into a bigger project that'll be released worldwide um and uh, yeah, I mentioned I'm working on this book on human trafficking. I've got all sorts of, I've got so much going on, Nick. <laughs> just, just follow me on Twitter. I'm on there as at Aubrey Menard and I'll tweet about, you know, all my projects. You'll also probably get a lot of sass about American politics too. And uh, that's the best way to follow me. 
Well, that's great. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's Book Reviews, plural, Asia. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. Thank you, Nick. It's been a real pleasure.